You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 32, The Battle of Golden Hill. Boston seemed to be a hotbed for colonial resistance in the years leading up to war. In and around Boston is where most of the major conflicts occurred and where the shooting war eventually began. But radical sentiment spread well beyond New England. Now, I'll continue to call those opposing British tax laws radicals because at the time they were probably a small radical faction within the colonial population. The term people used at the time to describe themselves was usually Whig. Later, the term patriot comes into fashion to describe these people, but that term does not seem to be used to describe them until around 1773. I may occasionally slip back and use patriot, but I am trying to reserve that for the later years. So some colonies had more radicals than others, but there were Sons of Liberty chapters in all colonies. New York Colony actually had a pretty conservative government, but also had a large radical faction primarily in New York City. New York also had to deal with a British troop presence. Although troops had been in New York much longer, clashes between the local Sons of Liberty and the soldiers grew increasingly violent. North American military commander Thomas Gage had moved several regiments of regulars to New York from Canada a few years earlier, greatly increasing the number of soldiers in the colony. Most New Yorkers did not want them around and certainly did not want to pay for their upkeep. You may recall back in episode 25, I discussed New York's refusal in 1766 to authorize tax funds for the soldiers, leading to Parliament's attempt to suspend all legislative authority for New York's assembly until it came up with the money. New York had always raised the money since that time, but doing so was always contentious. In late 1769, the fight over British regulars quartered in New York increased in intensity. In December 1769, the Assembly authorized a new tax to pay for the soldiers, which upset both sides. The British military thought the funds insufficient to support the troops. Most New Yorkers were upset about having to pay more money to support a presence they didn't want in the first place. Since I haven't discussed New York politics much so far, I thought now might be a good time to introduce some of the key players. Cadwallader Colden was an old man by the time period I'll be talking about today. Born in 1688, he was in his 80s during his stint as acting governor of New York from 1769 to 1770. He had been born in Ireland to Scottish parents and went to Edinburgh to study to become a minister. By the time he finished, his interest had turned to science and medicine, which he studied in London. He then moved to Philadelphia to start a medical practice, but after a few years moved to New York 
where he would spend the rest of his life. Colden must have had good political connections in New York since he received an appointment as Surveyor General and joined the Provincial Council in the first year that he was there. He spent a life active in many interests, including a correspondence with Benjamin Franklin on scientific issues and writing a book on the Iroquois Confederacy after serving as the colony's representative to the Five Nations. In 1760, on the death of James Delancey, the father of the man I'm going to discuss next, Colden received an appointment as lieutenant governor. He would serve as acting governor on at least three different occasions. As a representative of the Crown, Colden was not always popular. Stamp Act protesters had carried an effigy of him during a protest march on November 1, 1765, the day the Stamp Act was supposed to take effect. Protesters also stole his coach and burned it. Colden had most recently incurred the wrath of the Sons of Liberty by demanding the Colonial Assembly pay for the funds required under the Quartering Act to support regulars stationed in the colony. The next person I want to talk about is James Delancey, who also came from one of New York's most prominent families. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, his father, who had the same name, had been lieutenant governor of New York and actually had been acting governor for a short time before his death in 1760. The younger James was born in New York City, but spent many of his formative years in England going to boarding school. He studied law at Cambridge before returning to New York as an adult. Just about the same time he returned to the colonies, the French and Indian War broke out. Delancey served as a militia captain, seeing combat on several occasions. He resigned his commission and returned home in 1760 after the death of his father. Delancey then became one of the wealthiest men in the colony, running his family's merchant trading company and also engaging in land speculation. His father's political influence left Delancey with control of a powerful political party that controlled the colony. His main rival was the Livingston family. Delancey was a conservative, but as with just about everyone else in the colonies, he strongly opposed the Stamp Act, leading New York's opposition. Like most wealthy merchants, he objected to the rioting and destruction of property, but this was not particularly surprising. After all, wealthy merchants in Boston, like John Hancock, expressed many of the same reservations and concerns. Abhorrence of property damage aside, Delancey's opposition to the stamp tax and his support of non-importation agreements maintain his popularity with most New Yorkers. Despite his opposition to British taxes, though, he was a moderate and a wealthy member of the establishment. When the British made clear that New York would have to pay costs under the Quartering Act and Governor Colden called on the New York Assembly to act, Delancey led the fight in the Assembly to implement a tax that would cover the costs of quartering British regulars. This drew the wrath of some of the more radical elements of New York politics. Even so, most people saw Delancey as a supporter of colonial rights before the outbreak of the war. This would change over time, as Delancey would eventually have to flee New York for his loyalist sentiments. Now, among the radicals, we have Isaac Sears, who was born in Massachusetts and raised in Connecticut. At the age of 16, he took a job on a ship and within a few years was serving as a captain of a merchant vessel. He commanded a privateer during the French and Indian War, but lost his ship in 1761. 
After the war, he settled in New York City, running a fairly successful merchant trading company. He lived in a mansion on Broadway and settled into a comfortable life. Over time, he became involved in political issues, particularly those involving trade. In some ways, Sears became the Samuel Adams of New York. After the Stamp Act, he helped found the local chapter of the Sons of Liberty, joined committees of correspondence, and helped organize the New York protests against British taxes. As a respected and prosperous merchant, he could socialize with other elite merchants and city leaders, but was also comfortable in working-class circles, allowing him influence over much of the city's working population. Politically, at least at this time, he aligned himself with Delancey. That said, the two men disagreed and fought over the Quartering Act funding in 1769. Another important son of liberty was Alexander MacDougall. He came to New York as a child when his family moved from Scotland. His family came as part of a large group that planned to settle in upstate New York. The guy who organized the immigration, however, tried to force all the members of this group to become tenant farmers on his land. These immigrants did not sell everything to escape being tenant farmers in Scotland to become tenant farmers in America. They wanted to be landowners. The whole land scheme is an interesting topic in itself, but not one I have time to cover here. But several aristocrats did attempt to recreate the tenant farming system that greatly profited the aristocracy in Europe. But land in America was simply too available and too cheap to force commoners into such an exploitative position. In this case, the whole scheme fell apart, and MacDougall's father ended up abandoning the plan and began delivering milk for a dairy farmer on Manhattan. At age 14, MacDougall signed onto a merchant vessel and began a life at sea. He captains two small privateer vessels during the French and Indian War, and as such amassed a small fortune through these efforts. When his wife died in 1763, he gave up his life at sea to raise his three children. He began working as a merchant in New York and began to get involved in politics. Having some property gave MacDougall entry into politics, but he was uneducated and had the manners of a commoner as well as a Scottish accent that would keep him out of many elite circles. He did join the Sons of Liberty and became active in New York protests. In December 1769, MacDougall wrote a broadside entitled To the Betrayed Inhabitants of the City and Colony of New York. And I have a link to this on my companion webpage if you want to read it, as well as links to several other key documents. Just go to amrevpodcast.blogspot.com for more information. Now, what this broadside did was attack the Colonial Assembly and Delancey specifically for caving in on providing Quartering Act funds to house the British soldiers in the colony. Eventually, MacDougall would go to jail for this publication, convicted of seditious libel. This would only greatly increase his reputation among the radicals in the colonies, some calling him the Wilkes of America, after John Wilkes doing time in Britain for seditious libel as well. His controversial writing was circulating among New Yorkers, and MacDougall was still free in walking the streets as the incidents below unfolded in January 1770. Now, during this era, many towns in the colonies had erected liberty poles to celebrate victories in protection of their rights. 
Many say the practice of a liberty pole dates back to Roman times, when the assassins of Caesar erected a small pole with a cap of a freed slave on it to symbolize how they had freed Rome from the tyranny of slavery. The poles also bear a similarity to victory columns that many European cities and towns installed after winning great military victories or some other memorable event. New Yorkers had erected a first liberty pole on June 4, 1766, in honor of the king's birthday and also to celebrate repeal of the Stamp Act. It was not meant to be a symbol of rebellion. Rather, it was a celebration of the fact that the government in London had acted to protect colonial liberties. The pole bore the inscription, King, Pitt, and Liberty. But the pole became a focal point for radical Whigs to hold rallies. And when New York refused to come up with money to house British soldiers under the Quartering Act that year, soldiers in the city cut down the pole in August. New Yorkers erected a second pole within days, and again soldiers almost immediately cut it down. But the acts of destruction, on top of raw feelings over the Quartering Act dispute, raised tensions. But the governor permitted New Yorkers to erect a third pole in September, and gave strict instructions to the soldiers not to mess with it. That one lasted about six months. In March 1767, colonists gathered at the pole to celebrate the anniversary of the repeal of the Stamp Act. Following the celebration, that night soldiers once again cut down the pole. The Sons of Liberty erected a fourth pole the following day. Now this one had iron bands around the lower part of the pole to prevent anyone from cutting through the wood. Soldiers attempted to destroy this pole as well, the iron bands, along with the vigilance of the Sons of Liberty to protect it, prevented any more successful vandalism. The pole remained in place for nearly three years. In December 1769, the New York colony allocated a mere 1,800 pounds sterling for the quartering of troops, far too little for adequate housing. Once again, frustrated and angry soldiers decided to take it out on the pole. On January 13, 1770, a group of soldiers attempted to tear down the Liberty Pole once again. And this again was the fourth Liberty Pole that New Yorkers had put up, and because the iron bands prevented them from cutting through the pole, the soldiers drilled a hole, filled it with gunpowder, and attempted to blow it up. A passerby saw the soldiers messing with the pole and alerted others in nearby Montaigne's Tavern which served as the unofficial New York headquarters of the Sons of Liberty. Men from the tavern ran to the pole and confronted the soldiers. One soldier held them at bayonet point as the others attempted to finish to destroy the pole. The explosion, however, did not work. The fuse did not ignite the powder that they had put inside the pole, so the frustrated soldiers then invaded the tavern. They held everyone at bayonet point as they destroyed the tavern and beat up a waiter. A few days later, on the night of January 16th and 17th, a group finally succeeded in destroying the pole. They managed to ignite the powder in the pole, explode it, and knock it over. They then chopped up the pole, leaving the pieces in front of Montaigne's tavern. In response, the Sons of Liberty issued two resolves. First, that no soldier would be hired for any work in the city. The second said that any armed soldiers found armed after dark and not on duty, would be treated as criminals. Now the soldiers, who were pretty poorly paid by the army, 
often did odd jobs around town to earn extra cash. Essentially, the Sons of Liberty were calling for a boycott on the hiring of any soldiers in order to make them feel unwelcome. The treatment of the armed soldiers as criminals would also certainly lead to violence. Remember, the NYPD did not exist in 1770. Civilians helped make arrests when the sheriff needed help. A civilian could forcibly take a criminal to the authorities for arrest. Civilians attempting to subdue armed soldiers at night might seem like a recipe for violence. A few days later, on January 19th, the soldiers began posting handbills denying responsibility for the destruction of the pole, but also mocking the Sons of Liberty. Isaac Sears and a group of men grabbed two of these soldiers while they were posting the bills. They formed a mob and dragged the soldiers to the mayor's house to lodge a complaint. Other soldiers with them rushed to get reinforcements. Soon, 20 armed soldiers arrived on the scene, but were still far outnumbered by the growing mob. Sears had already gotten the two soldiers into custody in the mayor's house. Their comrades threatened to storm the home and remove them by force. They had their swords drawn and their bayonets fixed, clearly ready for a fight. A militia captain named Richardson ordered them to stop and return to their barracks. He told them the matter would be resolved peacefully by the mayor. After a short confrontation, the soldiers began marching back to their barracks. Much of the mob followed behind them. At some point, another group of soldiers joined with those retreating, thus increasing their numbers. And yet another group of soldiers moved behind the mob, effectively surrounding them. As the soldiers returned to their barracks, the mob continued to follow behind and taunt them. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but imagine a mob of several thousand New Yorkers who really didn't like you and weren't afraid to let you know it. As the soldiers reached the top of Golden Hill, they decided they had sufficient numbers and had taken enough abuse. With swords drawn and bayonets fixed, they attempted to force their way back through the mob, wounding dozens of people. Many in the mob fought back, wounding several of the soldiers. Accounts of the fighting differ greatly, depend on who was doing the writing. The Sons of Liberty portrayed the fight as out-of-control soldiers slashing at civilians, even those just standing around and who were not part of the mob. The Loyalist press painted a picture of soldiers defending themselves against a riotous mob. Later, people referred to the fight as the Battle of Golden Hill. Now, Golden Hill was a location in what is today Lower Manhattan, around the corner of John and William Streets. If you happen to be familiar with the area, you might note that there is no hill there. It's actually pretty flat. But that's because in the 19th century, New York flattened out most of the area, leveling hills and filling in gullies to make the city flatter and easier to travel. So while there is no hill there now, there was one in 1770. The fight resulted in quite a few injuries, but no one was killed. One newspaper reported a death a few days later, but this does appear to be an error. If anyone really had died, the Sons of Liberty would have held him up as a martyr to the cause. Several people, though, did suffer serious bayonet and sword wounds. British officers arrived, forcing the soldiers to stand down, while civilian leaders were able to contain the civilian mob. Over the next few days, fighting broke out several more times between soldiers and civilians, resulting in a few more injuries. 
there do not seem to have been any trials or legal consequences resulting from the battle, which probably involved around a hundred soldiers and a mob of roughly 3,000 civilians. The lack of legal action, of course, leaves us without witness statements or other information which might have been helpful in reconstructing events in New York, as we have in some of the events that happened in Boston around the same time. Newspapers hyped the story over the next few weeks, and word of the incident spread across the continent. The Sons of Liberty attempted to erect a fifth Liberty Pole on the same site. The mayor, however, denied them a permit. Instead, they erected the new pole on a private property nearby, which was owned by Isaac Sears. The new one was even bigger, 80 feet tall, with metal bands covering the lower two-thirds of the pole. The new pole would remain in place until British troops invaded the city in 1776. Unlike the first pole, which celebrated the king, this one simply said, Liberty and Property. Next week, another deadlier clash between civilians and soldiers takes place in what becomes known as the Boston Massacre. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.